Good morning. In today's headlines, former President Trump indicted in the 2020 election case over his actions on January 6th. We have reactions to the 2024 presidential candidate's third indictment this year. The toughest punisher. That's what some are calling the judge who will preside over Trump's capital breach case. We take a look at her as well as possible alleged co-conspirators in the January 6th indictment. Two U.S. financial powerhouses allegedly facilitating investments to blacklisted Chinese companies. A House committee is cracking down. We have the story. And concerns rise over the secret Chinese-linked biotech lab discovered in a California warehouse. We hear from a China expert who says it's an act of war. Tuesday marked the 40th anniversary of National Night Out. It was a day for police across the nation to get together with the communities they serve. Entity was in Washington, D.C. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Wednesday, August 2nd. You know Trump predicted the charges were coming. That's right, yeah, and it's the second indictment from Special Counsel Jack Smith's investigation, this time over the events of the January 6th Capitol breach. The Justice Department yesterday unsealed the latest indictment by a grand jury in Washington, D.C. Special Counsel Jack Smith on Tuesday announced the results of his probe into former President Trump's alleged role in the January 6th Capitol breach. A grand jury in Washington, D.C. approved four federal felony charges against Trump. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. The indictment alleges that Trump spread lies about the 2020 election and was involved in a conspiracy to obstruct and impede the January 6th congressional certification of the election results. The Department of Justice has remained committed to ensuring accountability for those criminally responsible for what happened that day. This case is brought consistent with that commitment, and our investigation of other individuals continues. In this case, my office will seek a speedy trial so that our evidence can be tested in court and judged by a jury of citizens. The Trump campaign responded to the new indictment saying, quote, this is nothing more than the latest corrupt chapter in the continued pathetic attempt by the Biden crime family and their weaponized Department of Justice to interfere with the 2024 presidential election. The Justice Department says Trump has been summoned to appear before a magistrate judge at 4 p.m. Thursday. Trump issued a video statement in response to the indictment. Take a look. The country is in a very dark place right now. But even after everything the deep state has done to me, I will never give up on America. Mark my words, in 2024, we will win back the White House. We will make America great again. I have no doubt about it. They come at me from left. They come at me from right. The rhinos, the communists, the Marxists, the fascists, we will not only survive, we will be stronger than ever before. On Truth Social, Trump questioned the timing of the indictment. He asked why these charges were not brought two and a half years ago following the 2020 election. He alleges the long wait was so that it would disrupt his campaign. He calls the move prosecutorial misconduct. 
Trump further questions why the charges were brought one day after Hunter Biden's business partner Devin Archer testified before a congressional panel. That was in connection with concerns then-Vice President Biden was somehow involved with his son's overseas business dealings. The indictment alleges that Trump said over 10,000 dead voters voted in Georgia, which the Georgia Secretary of State said was false. It also says Trump said over 200,000 more votes than voters happened in Pennsylvania, which Trump's acting attorney general said was false, and that there was a suspicious vote dump in Detroit, while Michigan state lawmakers said there was no substantial fraud in the state. Paul Kaminar, lead counsel for the National Legal and Policy Center, joins us live to discuss some of this. Paul, thanks for coming on the show. What do you think the defense is going to do to refute the allegations regarding Trump's claims of fraud that we just mentioned in Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Michigan? Well, thank you for having me. Yes, the uh, Trump's attorneys are going to amount a vigorous defense. First of all, there's absolutely nothing new in this indictment. We've all heard this uh, during the January 6th committee investigation. So the good point is, why did it take him two and a half years? And there's suspicious timing of this case. Moreover, if they're going to try this case, as their attorney says, this could take six to nine months. Uh, I mean, they, the committee took more than that to hear all these uh, allegations. Uh, but in terms of the fraud, there's nothing in here that uh, says, by the way, that Trump incited the riot uh, at, the, at the Capitol building uh, or anything he said uh, was, was uh, illegal because that's his First Amendment right. What, he's, what they're trying to do and what the defense is going to argue is that his claim that there was election fraud allowed him to ask Pence on the advice of several attorneys. By the way, there are five unindicted co-conspirator attorneys who provided legal advice to Trump on this, and they were, weren't indicted, by the way. Uh, so he was relying on their advice that Trump had the legal authority to not overturn the election like the liberal media is saying, but simply to pause it, to send it back to the states, to have them look at their uh, results and recertify it. If it came back that Biden won, Trump was ready to live with that. But but so, and you have not the fraud necessarily that uh, you mentioned about the dead voters and all that, but the bigger fraud uh, was the ones in, in states like Pennsylvania where the state election officials changed the voting process at the last minute because of COVID saying, oh, we can have mail-in ballots, they can come late, we can tabulate them later. That has to be done under the state constitution by the state legislature. So they're saying, well, you had all these court cases that rejected you, but these court cases for the most part said, look, we can't hear these cases. And, and they didn't have time to get a lot of that evidence in. So they're gonna challenge all this. And, and by the way, one of the counts here is really ridiculous, count four, uh, which says that uh, 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 President Trump uh, uh, violated the voting rights of individuals and he intimidated them. Uh, this is an 1871 Ku Klux Klan Civil Rights Act. And that's designed to go after uh, uh, say white supremacists who grab uh, uh, African Americans on the way to polls and and uh, and intimidate them and say you can't vote, you shouldn't vote, etc. That's what that law was about, and they're stretching that law and the other laws about obstructing official proceeding uh, to to encompass this. This is purely a political indictment. They already impeached 
of President Trump on the, on this conduct, and that's where it should have been left. But now, while Paul, he's running for president, timing of this. is it common for charges like this to be delayed for several years? Well, uh, it depends. Uh, uh, they've had all this information, so so there is this delay. But uh, the delay is more suspicious here, after Trump announced, and he's in the middle of a presidential campaign. That's the main thing that you have one administration that's in power, that's running to, to be reelected, going after their chief opponent, uh, who's running for the uh, other party. If he had been running for president, none of these uh, uh, indictments would have come down on this or the Mar-a-Lago or what what have you. So, so it is the timing is suspicious, uh, especially after uh, the testimony up on the hill of. Uh, uh, Devin Archer, who is Hunter Biden's co-conspirator uh, in terms of getting money uh, from overseas. So, yeah, there's a lot of suspicious things going on here. But legally speaking, uh, the defense attorneys uh, are going to mount a vigorous defense. And, and uh, I, 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 by the way, one other challenge they, they're going to be making, and one that we advocated, is to challenge Jack Smith's authority to even bring this, because he wasn't properly appointed as a special counsel under our Constitution, which says that U.S. attorneys and officers like that have to be appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Here, Merrick Garland plucked this guy off the street. Uh, he wasn't even a U.S. attorney or former U.S. attorney like John Durham was when Bill Barr appointed him to look into the uh, Russiagate hoax. He was already a U.S. attorney. So this guy is basically... Uh, having all this authority, and we're arguing, and they're going to be making this argument in the Mar-a-Lago case, and I'm assuming in this case, too, that, that uh, Jack Smith is just unconstitutional. And, Paul, of course, Trump is the GOP frontrunner here. The indictment alleges that Trump lied and acted on it by trying to substitute electors, persuade VP Pence to block the certification, and so on. But an op-ed by the Wall Street Journal is saying that this has troubling implications beyond Trump. That is, if a partisan prosecutor deems statements to be false, then they can go after that person. What's your reaction to this? Well, that's true. Uh, uh, this could uh, have very dangerous implications or ramifications for our whole political system because they're basically criminalizing political speech. And then we can go back to what the Democrats said. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, when Trump won in 2016, she said, our election was hijacked. Uh, we can't let this happen. And 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 also before that, uh, in the 2006 race, uh, they said, oh, the, the voting in Ohio, the, the uh, voting machines were rigged. Uh, and so there's like 100 instances where the Democrats have raised challenges uh, to the presidential elections when when the Republicans won. And so if, if they're going to play this game, then you can have this kind of uh, criminal action brought against uh, both sides. And that's a dangerous road to go. I really appreciate your analysis. Paul Kaminar, National Legal and Policy Center, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Republican 2024 presidential candidates reacted to the new indictment yesterday. Trump's attorney said in the case also revealed the focus of the defense. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the response. Trump's lead attorney in the January 6th case, John Lauro, called the indictment an attack on free speech and political advocacy. 
We engage in vigorous debate in this country about politics. What we don't do is criminalize political speech. This indictment is a game changer. It's the first time that we've taken political speech and said we're going to criminalize it by the party that's in control against the party that's contesting the next election where the two individuals involved are going to be running for office. That is an incredible set of circumstances. Loro says Trump's defense will focus on free speech. There's nothing that's more protected under the First Amendment than political speech. So at the, at the end, our defense is going to be focusing on the fact that what we have now is an administration that has criminalized the free speech and advocacy of a prior administration during the time that there is a political election going on. GOP 2024 presidential hopefuls had mixed reactions. Presidential candidate Mike Pence said the indictment serves as an important reminder that anyone who puts himself over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. Pence says Trump's candidacy takes attention away from Biden's economic policies and alleged corruption. GOP presidential candidate Asa Hutchinson accused Trump of misleading his supporters. And the indictment talks about that he knew that he had not won the election, but he continued to propagate this idea that he had. He misled his voters. He continues to do that today. Hutchinson says it's time for new leadership in the country, a sentiment shared by Republican presidential candidate Will Hurd. He needs to be beat in a primary. And yes, he's the presumptive nominee. The elections are 25 weeks away. There are more people that would rather not see Donald Trump um, on as the Republican nominee or on the ballot ever again, those people are the ones that are going to have to get activated, vote in primaries, and that's how we're going to solve this problem of Donald Trump once and for all. GOP contender Vivek Ramaswamy condemned the indictment as un-American and committed to pardoning Trump should he win in 2024. It would be easier for me if Donald Trump were eliminated from competition. That's not how I want to win. This is not about politics to me. This is about first principles. We do not want to become a country where the party in power is able to use banana republic-like tactics to eliminate its political opponents. Presidential candidates Senator Tim Scott and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis posted their opinions on X, but stopped short of committing to a pardon. Scott said the indictment reveals two different tracks of justice, one for political opponents and another for the son of the current president. DeSantis vowed to end the weaponization of government, replace FBI Director Christopher Wray, and ensure a single standard of justice for all Americans if elected. The Trump campaign released a statement dismissing the indictment as an attempt to interfere with the 2024 presidential election. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. We will have more for you on Trump's indictment and what's known about the six alleged co-conspirators after the break. And coming up, two U.S. financial powerhouses allegedly facilitating investments to blacklisted Chinese companies. A House committee is cracking down. And concerns rise over the secret Chinese-linked biotech lab discovered in California warehouse. China expert Gordon Chang says it's an act of war and that there are undoubtedly more of the labs on U.S. soil. That story and more after the break. Good to have you back. Continuing with the indictment of the former president, a judge notorious for handing out tough sentences on January 6th defendants has been assigned to the case. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on District Judge Tanya Chutkin. 
Judge Tanya Chutkin has doled out stricter sentences than the Justice Department called for in seven January 6th cases. She honored its requests in four others and sent all 11 capital breach defendants who came before her behind bars. In four cases in which prosecutors weren't even seeking jail time, Chutkin handed out sentences ranging from 14 days to 45 days. The Associated Press called Chutkin the toughest punisher, saying she has consistently taken the hardest line against January 6th defendants of any judge serving on Washington's federal trial court. In comparison, 20 judges who have sentenced capital breach defendants have handed out lighter sentences than prosecutors were seeking in about 75% of cases. No other judge apart from Chutkin has exceeded prosecutors' recommended punishment in most of the cases assigned to them. Chutkin has repeatedly spoken out in very strong terms against the events of January 6th. The Jamaica native has served as a federal judge since she was appointed by former President Barack Obama in 2014. After graduating from University of Pennsylvania Law School, Chutkin spent more than a decade working as a public defender in Washington, D.C. At a sentencing hearing in October 2021, she said those who participated in the January 6th breach soiled and defaced the halls of the Capitol and showed their contempt for the rule of law. At the same hearing, she rejected comparisons between January 6th and the 2020 BLM protests, saying to compare the actions of people around the country protesting mostly peacefully for civil rights to a violent mob seeking to overthrow the lawfully elected government is a false equivalency and downplays the very real danger that the crowd on January 6th posed to our democracy. At least 14,000 people were arrested in the BLM protests and more than 19 people died in relation to the unrest. Arson, vandalism, and looting caused approximately $1 to $2 billion in damages. Before sentencing two friends who came to the Capitol, Chutkin said, this wasn't Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Calling their actions an assault on the American people, she added, this was a violent attempted overthrow of the government and it almost succeeded. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. We're continuing with the Trump indictment. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on Trump's alleged possible co-conspirators. The six alleged co-conspirators are not named in the indictment and have not been charged by special counsel Jack Smith, but their detailed descriptions hint at their identity. Possible alleged co-conspirator number one is Rudy Giuliani. The former New York City mayor and Trump's former personal attorney played a prominent role in sharing theories of widespread fraud in the 2020 election and spoke at an event outside the White House on January 6, 2021. Number two, attorney John Eastman, who represented Trump in a lawsuit to overturn voting results in four states. Eastman wrote a series of legal memos which claimed that former Vice President Mike Pence could reject electors from certain states to deny Democrat Joe Biden a majority of the Electoral College vote. Number three, attorney Sidney Powell, part of a legal team that filed unsuccessful lawsuits seeking to overturn election results. She has been sued for defamation by the voting companies over claims she made about them rigging the 2020 election against Trump. Tuesday's indictment described someone with similar characteristics claiming that Trump privately told others that the election fraud claims by this alleged co-conspirator sounded crazy, but that he still embraced and publicly amplified the allegations. Possible alleged co-conspirator number four, former high-ranking Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark. Clark allegedly tried to convince Trump to oust acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, 
so that he could take over the department. The alleged plan was then to pursue Trump's claims by opening an investigation into voter fraud in Georgia and other swing states. Number five, attorney Kenneth Chesabro, who allegedly helped devise a plan to submit fake slates of electors for Trump to obstruct Congress's certification of the election results. Possible alleged co-conspirator number six is currently not clear based on the information in the indictment. The person is described as a political consultant. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Strategically decoupling from the Chinese Communist Party, that's what some China hawks in Congress aim to do, and it appears they've taken the first steps. The House Select Committee on China is cracking down on U.S. investments to CCP-run companies. NTD's Melina Weisskopf reports. In the first solid action taken by the House's Select Committee on China, members are investigating two firms, BlackRock, which is the world's largest asset manager, and MSCI. It's a bipartisan effort, and the Republican chairman, along with the top Democrat on the committee, are saying that BlackRock has invested more than $429 million in Chinese companies that have been blacklisted by the government over either national security or human rights issues. As a country, we have to have a national policy on outbound investment. We also have to look at what are, why do we make it so favorable to invest in China still? And when I recently asked Chairman Gallagher about strategically decoupling from China, he said that the economic aspect will be the hardest piece of the puzzle. We have to figure out a way to reclaim our economic independence, to stop funding our own destruction, and to take the golden blindfolds off when it comes to the risks of doing business with Beijing. The chairman is now introducing a bill to force tax-exempt entities such as nonprofits, universities, or public pension plans to divest from China, otherwise lose their tax-exempt status. Gallagher saying that these nonprofits must choose. Are they committed to their professed values or to financing a genocidal communist regime? Do you think this is a step in the right direction? Absolutely. I think that uh, it's, and, and it shouldn't go only to nonprofits and higher education institutions. And the Senate has taken action on Chinese investments too, recently passing a bill that would require U.S. firms to notify the Treasury if they're investing in Chinese tech companies. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Concerns are rising over the Chinese biolab discovered in a California warehouse. The secret lab contained around 20 potentially infectious agents, including the coronavirus and HIV. Roughly 1,000 lab mice were also found. One expert says there are undoubtedly more of the labs on U.S. soil. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more. Fresno County authorities first discovered the unlicensed laboratory in Reedley, California in March this year. Officials closed the site at the end of May. The lab was operated by Chinese medical company Prestige Biotech. It contained at least 20 potentially infectious agents, including the CCP virus, HIV, hepatitis, herpes, E. coli, and malaria. Roughly 1,000 white lab mice were also found. China expert Gordon Chang told NTD's Stefania Cox it would be safe to assume more labs like it exist in the U.S. This has been called mysterious, but we know enough, and we have to be extremely concerned. You know, this lab was supposed to be making COVID-19 and pregnancy tests, but they found a lot of things in the lab that are inconsistent with that explanation, including at least 20 agents for various diseases. And also there were about a thousand white lab mice there that were genetically engineered to carry pathogens. 
So we have to assume that this was a biological weapons facility in the United States, probably was going to spread disease in the months before uh, the Chinese plan to launch a war in Asia. And there are undoubtedly other facilities like this in the U.S. That's our assumptions that we need to work under. The lab was found roughly 40 miles from Naval Air Station Lemur. I think that the purpose of the lab was maybe not so much infecting personnel at a military installation, but just a general biological weapons attack on the American people. Chang says it's an act of war, and those involved should be sent to Guantanamo detention camp indefinitely until the matter is sorted out. I think this is part of China's plan to weaken the United States. With regard to COVID-19, I think it was genetically engineered, maybe 98, 99% probability of that. But, Steph, there's something that's 100% certain, and that is that once this disease got out into the Chinese population, Xi Jinping decided to spread it beyond China's borders. You know, in critical times in December 2019 and January 2020, they lied about transmissibility. They told the world it was not contagious when they knew that it was. And while they were locking down their own country, they were pressuring others, especially the U.S., to take arrivals from China without restrictions. You put those two things together, and the only conclusion is they wanted to spread this disease. Now we find this facility in Reedley. They want to spread another disease. We need to start looking at other Chinese-owned facilities in the United States. And, and this is not racial. It's just because no Chinese entity, no Chinese individual can resist the demand from the Communist Party, which has made it clear that the United States is an enemy. We need to fight back. The Chinese think they're at war. We think that we're at peace. We're just oblivious right now. A federal criminal investigation into the lab is ongoing. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, the Pentagon is suspending security cooperation with Niger. This days after military officers seize power in the West African nation in a coup against the president. Stay tuned for more. The stories that need to be told, the voices that need to be heard, the truth you need to see. Get unbiased and in-depth news. Don't miss a beat. I'm Stephanie Cox. At NTD, we're here for you. What is China like, really? Is it defined by its giant economy, an oppressive government, or its people? By the worst persecutors or the most courageous freedom fighters? We're lifting the veil to look at global impacts and how close the regime is to your doorstep. From eyewitnesses and analysts, get the facts. Here on China in Focus. Welcome back. The Pentagon is suspending security cooperation with Niger. This is days after military officers seized power in the West African nation in a coup against the president. The Pentagon's top spokesperson said Tuesday the U.S. is suspending counterterrorism training with soldiers in Niger. But the U.S. military will maintain close contact with Niger's military counterparts in the country as the situation continues to unfold. There are roughly 1,100 U.S. troops stationed in Niger. Despite the suspension, there are no plans to evacuate them. There are also no plans to evacuate American citizens from the country. This is while European nations such as France and Spain are working to evacuate their citizens from Niger. 
On Thursday, Niger's army spokesman said all activities by political parties in Niger have been suspended until further notice. And over to Ukraine, where we have some updates. Russian drone attacks on Ukraine have intensified. An attack by Russia on Ukraine's grain ports in the early hours of this morning included a port across the Danube River from Romania. According to Ukraine's defense ministry, a grain silo was also damaged in the port of Ismail in the Odessa region, which was the main target of the attack. There were no reports of casualties. The attacks have had an impact on the price of grain, which affected food prices globally. Several Russian drones were shot down early this morning over the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv. The mayor of Kyiv said several districts of the city were hit by falling drone debris, but no injuries or casualties were reported. Air raid alerts were later lifted for the capital and surrounding areas. And now some short headlines from around the world. Meta has begun the process to end access to news on Facebook and Instagram for all users in Canada. That's in response to a law requiring internet giants to pay news publishers. The Canadian government denounced the move as irresponsible. Engineering firms including Honeywell warned Germany of unintended consequences of a bill banning gas boilers. The unpopular legislation will allow the government to exclude a refrigerating gas and heat pumps. The companies warn of adverse impacts on energy efficiency, energy security and the financial cost to citizens. Armed robbers raided a store of the luxury Swiss watch brand Piaget in, Fer- in Paris yesterday. They escaped with between $11 million to $16 million worth of jewelry. French media report the gang was smartly dressed, with men wearing gray suits and a woman in a green dress. A Russian cruise ship left a port in Georgia after angry protesters threw eggs and bottles of water and asked the tourists to leave. The protesters in Batumi were opposed to two Georgian regions occupied by Russia and the war in Ukraine. The tour operator has dropped Batumi as a stop on the ship's route. And apparently Facebook did not think that it was worth it to pay the news publishers to have their content on their site. Well, no fake that, right? yeah. And we're going to continue our program with Florida now adopting a new statewide college entrance exam to be used together with the SAT and ACT. What's behind the potential change? Find out when we come back. Good to have you back. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is pushing universities in his state to accept a new standardized test, popular with Christians and conservatives. Florida may become the first state to require the Classic Learning Test, or CLT. This test is designed to be an alternative to the SAT and ACT, which some think promote a progressive agenda. Currently, the CLT is used in about 200 private colleges nationwide. DeSantis has strongly opposed Common Core curriculum and what he sees as progressive topics. The College Board of Florida released an analysis last month questioning the rigor and methodology of the CLT tests. The Florida Board of Governors will meet this month to decide whether to approve the CLT in addition to the SAT and ACT. So how exactly are they different? We bring in Jeffrey Tucker to find out more. He's a senior columnist with the Epic Times and the founder of the Brownstone Institute. Good morning, Jeffrey. Can you first walk us through some of the key differences when it comes to the teaching material? 
lots of changes have taken place in our basic testing over the decades, much more than parents realize, much more than anybody realizes, to the point that you don't have to know any classical standards of education. What typical students were required to know, say, 60 years ago in American education or any civilized country is now practically absent on all these entrance exams. So what Florida is trying to do, that, and by the way, this classical learning test, it's not, it's not really conservative or Christian, it's, it's a focus on classical education. Uh, the things that people once believed that you should know to be a, a literate and civilized uh, uh, scholar or intellectual. So no, I think that's, that's a very good test. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Now, can you go in a bit more detail um, and give some examples what you mean by that? Um, what is absent that you think should be included or was included to your point 60 years ago? Well, 60 years ago, you didn't have anything about critical race theory. People were not required to believe in a certain political bent of progressive politics. Uh, you didn't have to believe that the history of America is a history of slavery and discrimination and, and oppression of women and this sort of thing. All these concepts that have invaded the schools have invaded also the testing. So, and especially in the liberal arts section, and they're far less rigorous on matters of, you know, uh, just basic, you know, Greek uh, philosophy, uh, you know, uh, logic, the, these normal uh, linguistics or uh, uh, basic grammar, any of these kind of considerations have been deprecated in all the new testing. So the classical, the classical t uh, test is very good because what it, it it's 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 meant to match the new standards of classical education in the primary and secondary level education with college entrances. So Florida's not talking about getting rid of the SAT or any of the standardized tests that we know. They're just adding the classical uh, to the CLT as a uh, as a possible alternative, the same as. Uh, many under hundreds of small colleges have, have done. And let's make no mistake about it. Uh, these colleges are producing some of the best students, the most disciplined, the most focused, the most literate in the entire country. And this is unlike what you're going to get out of the major state universities, much less the Ivy League. Interesting. Now, when you mentioned, well, they're trying to look at this as an alternative, and one worry that the College Board expressed is that the curriculum is not up to standards, basically, that some topics are only being scratched on the surface. I think math was an issue, um, and testing standards are just different. So what about uh -huh. um, the, the fairness, so to speak, of people that are being tested one way and another way? So is anything being done to address these concerns? Well, sure. I mean, the, and in fact, adding this test as part of the possible uh, test that you can take is part of addressing that fairness because it's it's one thing um, uh, if 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 you have a strong math and science background then you can take a test that you know that is friendly to that but if you've been studying the liberal arts of the great books um, and you've been reading, you know, ancient philosophy or uh, Descartes or uh, you're re re reading Adam Smith. You've been doing a great book style uh, program. Uh, that is a very rigorous liberal arts uh, education. And you should be rewarded for that. And college should be selecting you for that. That, that it's a sign of also a sign of intelligence and rigor if you can get through these classical style p programs and students should be tested on their aptitudes uh, dis whatever their whatever their specialization ha intellectual specialization happens to be so the CLT is is a matter of ending the discrimination against highly educated kids 
who are looking for good colleges to get into. Thank you for that take on that. I think that's a good point. Now, PragerU says that they're in an alternative to dominant left-wing ideologies, but I also want to address the other side, so that there's, they're being accused of putting in right-wing ideologies in the curriculum. Is that true, or what is your reaction to that? Well, including Prager as part of that, yes, that, that has an ideological edge, unlike the classical learning test. It, it, the Prager University does have an ideological edge. But again, it's is a matter of balancing out the overwhelming <laughs> views of the other side. I, I, don't th I don't think people uh, understand just how dominant progressive ideology has become. It's, it's like this hegemon. It's moved in over several decades to sque and squeezed out everything else. So I, I kind of like the idea that at least uh, with Prager University as part of a, a, a acceptable curriculum, that at least students are given a, a presentation of a wide variety of views on on a wide variety of topics, and let the let the, the students choose. I mean, the most exciting thing I ever did in college was take a philosophy class with a hardened Marxist, okay? That was really exciting for me because it challenged my views. Well, the problem is that since I was in college and now, now everybody's a Marxist. Okay, so we need, we need some voices to challenge that, to push back on it, if we're going to have a rigorous education as opposed to just pure indoctrination. I hope you mm. see what I'm saying. Yeah, um, help students think for themselves. I think that's a good yeah. point, too. Yeah. Thank you, Jeffrey Tucker. I really appreciate your uh, time this morning. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Governor DeSantis, in a letter, invited Vice President Harris to Tallahassee for a talk about Florida's controversial African-American history standards. Vice President Harris flatly refused a prior invitation. The topic of discussion was to be the new history curriculum approved for teaching there. In a speech from Orlando yesterday, Harris labeled DeSantis and Florida Republicans as extremists. She also accused them of replacing history with lies. In his letter to Harris, he wrote that the Biden administration has disparaged and misinformed Americans about the Florida educational system. The dispute between them stems from Florida's newly approved history curriculum and what it teaches about slavery and other African-American history topics. Social media company X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, has filed a lawsuit against an online research group. According to the lawsuit, the group engaged in a scare campaign to drive away advertisers from the platform, costing the company millions of dollars. Entities cost MS has the story for us. The lawsuit against the Center for Countering Digital Hate, or CCDH, was filed on July 31st. It states that CCDH's American and British operations engaged in a string of unlawful acts designed to improperly gain access to protected ex-corporation data, such as data scraping from a secure database containing ex-data, by convincing an unknown third party to share their login credentials for the database. Ex-corporation argues that the center's actions were a scare campaign, which led to the loss of advertisers, amid accusations of ongoing violations of so-called hate speech rules. The center has argued in favor of deplatforming accounts that share content the group deems hateful or misinformation, including conservative websites like The Federalist. The lawsuit seeks damages with interest for alleged breach of contract and violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, as well as intentional interference with contractual relations. 
X-Corporation also requested that CCDH be prohibited from further accessing, using or disclosing any X-materials or data. The center's CEO, Imran Ahmed, decried the move, saying his organization has no intention of stopping its actions. Ahmed also accused Musk of using the lawsuit to silence criticism of his leadership. Since Elon Musk's takeover of the platform last year, it has been hailed by conservatives for honoring users' First Amendment rights. The latest lawsuit is the fifth that X has filed in recent weeks, relating to unauthorized data collection. Cost MNS, NTD News. Fitch Ratings made a rare move yesterday by cutting the U.S. government's credit rating from AAA to AA+. The move was not a surprise, though. Fitch warned the administration about the move back in May. The last time the credit rating was cut was in 2011. Fitch cited rising federal, state and local debt and a worsening standard of governance as the main factors. Over time, this lowered credit rating could cost U.S. taxpayers and raise borrowing costs for the government. Treasury Secretary Yellen denounced the decision as arbitrary and based on outdated data. Well, that's yet another reason to keep the national debt within manageable levels. Mm, yeah, let's see how everything will play out for us and when we will start to feel that. Yes. And coming up, if you missed last night's supermoon, we have some beautiful footage of it. And Tuesday marked the 40th anniversary of National Night Out. It was the day for police officers across the nation to get together with the communities they serve. Welcome back. The first Tuesday of every August is National Night Out. This is the day for police officers from all across the country to build relationships with local communities. And today's Sam Wong brings us more from Washington, D.C. Peace and joy at the nation's capital. It was all made possible when local police officers walked into the very crowd they protect and serve, showing their neighbors who they are behind the badge. National Night Out showed law enforcement that you have to be part of the community, you have to interact with them, and you have to be a member and listen to them and be a partner. The National Night Out is an annual event that seeks to build connections between police and neighborhoods, and that relationship is needed more so than ever, as inner-city crime rates continues to climb. Just recently, the Mexican consulate in Washington, D.C. stepped in to address the concern, warning Mexican nationals that parts of the city are no longer considered safe. Violent crime in the D.C. area has surged by a staggering 36 percent compared to the same time last year, and just homicide alone is up by 15 percent. Councilmember Brooke Pinto told me that the public's trust in police is the foundation to improving safety. The more community trust and relationships people have with our police, the safer our city will be, the more likely people are to report an incident of crime or report suspicious activity. At the event, Residents are able to take part in safety demonstrations set up by first responders, as well as block parties, live music, bounce beds, cookouts, and many more. And I see you got some pretty good food out here. So how does it feel catering to the communities? <laughs> it's cool. It's busy. So it's, it's kind of helpful. People know what they want when they come, but they don't always know what they want, but it's okay. Many have tables set up on the site. This is Dwayne Harper. 
He's out here showing folks a new video platform. What is this, uh, what is this platform that you guys are trying to introduce to people? Well, this platform is called Gaijin World. It's a clean platform that has no harmful content on there, no criminal activity, and it's good for children and adults and individuals. And we encourage everyone that comes to the event to post about their experience about the event. We have a lot of vendors out here, uh, our table, some of the vendors over here, great food. Post about your experience. All seven police districts across Washington, D.C. have hosted events during the later afternoon and evening hours. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Sam Wong, NTD News. Well, hopefully initiatives like this can pave the way for improved public security. Oh, yeah. What a fun idea to do that, too, building yes. trust. Something exciting for stargazers now. The first of two August supermoons took place last night. Footage of the rare spectacle has gone viral on social media. These shots here were taken in Jerusalem, but it was also seen in other parts of the world, including here in New York City. Supermoons are full moons that come closest to Earth's orbit, making them seem larger and brighter. It's also known as a sturgeon moon because that's when sturgeon fish increase in North American lakes. If you missed the event, don't worry. Another blue supermoon will rise again on August 30th, and the next one will be once-in-a-decade phenomenon. Look at that beautiful sight. Yes, just seeing the moon, it was so bright, like a big light bulb. Oh yeah, you were one of the stargazers, right? You enjoy yeah. that? No. Well, good that you were able to catch that. Fun. <laughs> all right, that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. Write us if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.